Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. This is the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the Word of God. Okay, Revive. We're in a new series, just past Labor Day, and I don't know if you feel this as we're past Labor Day. We're in the fall, and we're starting a whole new series. We just completed, in a lot of ways, probably what was maybe a difficult series on, on, on wisdom. And um, maybe week in and week out, you, you might have found kind of like I did sometimes, like, man, there's not a whole lot of wisdom sometimes in me, is there? Um, but we are going to do this, a new series. And I, I just want to tell you why we're doing this series. And the series is called The Household of God. And it's not a long series. We have four weeks planned. And the series is really about the importance of the church and really kind of how the church is structured. And the reason why we're talking about this is because we have a really important um, piece of business to do as the church for us to grow as a church. We're a new church, and one of the important things to do as a, as a church is to raise up leaders. We need to raise up elders. In order for you to do that, you, you need to learn something of how the Bible thinks about the church and its shepherds. And so this chapter is the quintessential important chapter and I'm starting with a message on the back end of this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is really about the church itself. And we are in a time when um, the church is, is very weakened, and the church is, of course, you know, disrespected and, quite frankly, dis despised. And certainly we have, we have found out in this COVID season, our government leaders think very little of what we do here as a church. And um, regularly feel that I actually think they're flat out breaking the law by dictating to churches how we could worship and what we can and can't do, which actually our constitution says you can't do. But, um, but I hope you don't, you're not swallowing that message. That if you yourself are a believer in Jesus, you should not be swallowing the regular message that the church is not important. The church is absolutely, tremendously important. And, if, and actually, in a time such as this, when America is beset with weakness and great division and suffering and just, just, just tremendous confusion, um, the church is more desperately needed than ever. And so let's get into it. Today's message is called Truth and Humanity Through Church. Three parts. Part one, the desperate need for truth. The desperate need need for truth. The passage talks about the church is a pillar and buttress or buttress of truth. I'll, say, I'll explain what that means in just a second. But um, the desperate need for truth, part one. Part two, truth needs a household. Truth needs a delivery system. Truth needs a structure. Um, God offers one. It's called the church. And in this verse, in this passage, it's called the household of God, the church. And part three, 
godliness and true humanity from the church. Um, a lot of people think, do we really need church? Um, I would like to just put forward to you, if there's no church, our whole society will just cave or just become a nightmare. There's a lot of things that are really wrong with America right now. And um, I will propose to you, one of the big reasons is because there's a lack of church. And because there's a lack of church, there's a lack of real humanity in our society. And um, so let's get into that and how the church offers a pathway, a real promise of real humanity. Okay, part one, um, the desperate need for truth. I'm going to give you a little history lesson. And I gave you a version of this in you know, previous messages, but let me just present this just with a, a slight twist. Um, I'm in my late 40s, and um, so I know for some of you, it's, it's like really ancient, <laughs> okay? You're like, well, he's really old. Um, what that means, though, is that when I was young, I lived in a different philosophical era. If you're, if you're in your 20s today, you, you don't really know what that's like, um, I studied pretty serious philosophy and, 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 and important ideas about what shapes our society. A lot of people think philosophy doesn't matter or theology doesn't matter. But all societies are built on fundamental ideas that we believe. You have ideas that you believe. You're just for instance, there's a God and he thinks it's good and great if you kill all the people who oppose him. There are actually religions that believe that. That's an idea. There are people who believe in that idea, and they will act upon that idea. There are other ideas like, well, you know, it doesn't matter if there is a God, or it doesn't really matter if we know if there's a God. That, of course, is an idea that's very common today. Now, let me tell you kind of like um, how the, the other era, when I was younger, philosophers call that era the modernist era. Today, they call this the postmodern era, modern and postmodern. And let me try to just describe to you you know, in a nutshell, I mean, there are other differences, but at, at, at its core, how did the modern era function? And I grew up in this era when I was younger, and it's, it's quite different. And it's quite different today, particularly on the issue of truth. So on the issue of truth, how did the modern era function? In America, America was the quintessential modern country. And in the modern era of America, they basically, there was a kind of division of labor. In your quote-unquote private life, you could get the truths about what is morality, values, and purpose. Moralities, values, and purpose, that came from your church. <laughs> you went to religion. In America, the dominant religion was Christianity. So probably, if you went to church, and the majority of Americans did go to church. I don't know what the, that meant. I mean, they probably, at one, you know, I'm, probably the majority of Americans did not go to church every single week when I was a boy in the 70s and 80s. But the majority of Americans, and I mean like 70 or 80% of Americans, probably went to church at least two or three times a year. 50% of Americans probably went to church at least once a month. And maybe 30 or 40% of Americans church, went to church pretty much every week. So you're, the truth about Morality, values, and purpose came from religion that was considered in the private realm. So everybody knows you have to have some answers for, there's a question. 
What is right? What is wrong? What should I value? What should I not value? What should I condemn? That's another way of putting it. What should I condemn? What should I love? What should I hate? What should I contend for? What should I despise? That's values. Everybody, you can't escape that question. If you don't value anything, you're, you're not alive. <laughs> At the very least, you have to decide if you value hamburger over carrots, okay? <laughs> All right? So you have to value something. But of course, there's the stakes are much higher than that for life. And there has to be truth. Here we go, back to the word. Truth about what's morality, values, and then, of course, this big question, what's your purpose? What are you for? What is life for? And have you noticed today, people don't know what that, what that answer is. They don't, answer, they, have an, they don't have an answer for that. They don't have a truth for what your life is for, purpose. But anyway, when I was younger, there were answers. And on, on those questions, they came from the church or they came from religion. If you were Jewish, you went to synagogues, okay? And Americans, Americans are a tolerant group. It's like, okay, if you're a Buddhist, you can go to the Buddhist temple. That's fine. Go get your values and all that other stuff from there. In the public realm, things like, how should our politics work? How should our government spend its money? What should be the policies and our laws? The public realm. On the public realm, there was a way to get to questions of truth, and that was done via science, evidence, and reason. Science, evidence, and reason. So it was understood that it does not matter if you are black or if you are white or if you are rich or if you are poor, if you are American or not American. In this country, there is a way we adjudicate issues of truth. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican or from California or from Texas or from Alabama. It doesn't matter. There is a way to adjudicate the question of truth. Science, reason, evidence. So I'm a child of that era. I grew up in that era. And let me tell you something. Um, after now having lived in the modern era and the postmodern era, I have concluded that the modern era is way better. <laughs> and I've concluded that on this issue, truth. So today in the postmodern era, that's not how we do these things, right? So everything I just explained to you, if you're in your 20s, you're going to like, whoa, that's not how we do things today. That isn't how we do things today. In the postmodern era, nobody knows what is truth. What we only have is communities, and communities have narratives. We have stories. Nobody knows if those stories are actually true. We don't even know if you can use things like science, evidence, or reason to determine the truth or the falsity of the narratives. All you just know is you're in a tribe. You're in a tribe, and that tribe has stories. And that stories become your truth. But what if your tribe's truths aren't true? <laughs> what if your child's, tribe's truth are just a bunch of half-truths or lies? And the powerful people in your tribe, they like telling you these stories or truths because... It's useful for them. It makes them money, or it keeps, it keeps people kind of under control, or something like this. 
That's kind of the skepticism of certain ideologies today that essentially truths get used this way. I think that's true. I think there's a lot of that going on. And I think a lot of you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you could feel that this is a serious problem. This is a very, very serious problem. And so today, in the postmodern era, we just have a lot of narratives. There's no objective truth. There's no objective. It's completely, purely subjective. And there is no absolute. So, you know, when I was younger, if you said you believe in absolute truth, they'd say, well, what are you? Some kind of like, some superstitious, like backwards fundamentalist religious person? Let me tell you something. If you don't believe that there is some way to get to absolute truth, you're, you are completely lost. <laughs> Everything is pure subjectivity. Everything is just, pow- it's just, it's just a, uh, It's just powerful people telling you whatever they want to tell you. And today, it's so much worse. I can't ever remember. I'm not sure if there's an era that's ever been quite like our era. Because now, people, you know, you have your phone, and your phone tells you the truth. And it's just filled with, you know, the news. But the news is, the news half the time is just a bunch of, like, you know, it's just your feed, and if all the people that you know have this bias because they like that tribe, then that's your feed. And if you go to this, then that's your feed. Where's truth? Where do you get truth? Now, here we go. Here's how the Bible places this. So the first verse isn't so much important. I hope to come to you soon. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy. I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Here's what I want to get at. In the household of God, here's the verse I want to see. Which is the church of the living God? So what's the church? It's the household of God. I'm going to get that in part in, in the next portion of my message. And here's the part that I want to get at. What does the church offer? It's a pillar and buttress of the truth. What's a, a pillar? You guys know what a pillar is. There's a, you know, you have, if you're going to build a structure, you have to have pillars. Something that holds things up. If you don't have a pillar, you have no structure. And if you have no structure, you're out in the wild. There's no protection. There's no shelter. So the church is a pillar that offers us the shelter of truth. That's one. Second, what's a buttress? A buttress is like a support. A buttress is like the bottom foundational portion that offers you a support. You have to, I don't know, I think it could have been translated a pillar and support. Maybe support sounds too weak. And a foundation, maybe a foundation. The bottom portion which allows it to stand on something strong and solid. That's what the church is offering the world. A pillar and a buttress of truth. And so, um, in this time and period when, where do you get truth? Where do you get truth? The first thing I want to offer to say to you, if you're a Christian, I hope you gladly come to church and regularly, profoundly believe in church. Gladly give your money to church. Gladly give your time to church. Because you and I and our neighbors, we desperately need what the church offers. But let me just, if you're not convinced, let me just offer you a couple things. All right? Right now in this postmodern era, how do, you, how do most people do it? They look for truth. What they basically do is they basically don't know what is like truth. I mean, we, you know, the Christians say we have the Bible. The Bible is, this is the truth. 
And then the church stands on the Bible and then proclaims the Bible and then becomes a support, a buttress, and a pillar for all the people who believe in it. So together we have this. But if you don't have this, you know all you have? You just sort of kind of feel your way through life. And you're just trusting that you have some intuition. You're going to meet somebody. And if they say, you'll, you'll know if they speak the truth to you, right? Right? Do you really know? How do you know? All you got are just your feelings and your intuitions. And if this is the way you're going about the world through life, looking for truth, I want to offer it to you, this is a really, really bad plan. Your feelings are unstable. Your intuitions, which is sort of like your feelings kind of like put together. Intuition is more like, you know, your organized feelings that you regularly have. If you depend on your feelings and your intuitions, you're depending on something incredibly unstable and which can be manipulated and which do get manipulated. And very, very powerful and smart people today know how to manipulate people's feelings. It's called marketing. It's called propaganda. And, um, and now they got you through the phone. You know, what, what you're getting through the phone a lot of times, I, I don't know. And they kind of already know. They already studied you because you're already giving them all the information about what you like. It's called big data. And now, you know, we're being manipulated all the time. So how do you know what's true? Let me just offer some other things. There's some big questions. I already talked about what's right and wrong. We just went through a series on what's wise and foolish. And what we found out that what the Bible considers wise versus foolish is tremendously different than what we think is wise and foolish because we're just kind of fumbling around with our feelings in the postmodern era. That is no wisdom because we've already kind of dispensed with God, revelation, a revealing from God. And then we decided we're wise enough to figure it out ourselves. And we're going to do it on our feelings. Hmm. Let me offer some other things. What's the truth about your identity? What's the truth about your identity? You have to have an answer for that question. There has to be some truth about your identity. So today, it's very common. Your identity is something you're good at. It's like your job. So if you're, if you're an athlete, that's your identity. <laughs> or if you're a programmer, that's your identity. Really? What if you get fired? Then your identity, you don't just lose your job, you lose you. That's not a good way to do. That's not a good place to find the truth of who you are. Other, another way is to go say, everything about who I am is important because I'm black. Or I'm white. Or I'm lesbian. Or I'm a black woman, lesbian, therefore I'm triply oppressed and been victimized by my society, and that's my identity. I'll propose to you, this isn't a good way to make your identity. There's a lot more to a person. You may be black, and you may be, you may be a woman, and you may be a lesbian, but you're a lot more than that. You're a lot more than that. You might be an artist. You might like music. You might like poetry. There's a, there's a lot more than you than that. You might be very surprising. You're a lot, there's a lot more than you than that. A human being is a lot bigger and deeper and more complex. And the infinite 
the infinite worth and dignity of human being cannot be simplified into something small like black. You can't do that. And if you do that, the truth of who you are, you're squishing it down into something really, really small, and your truth is actually something more like a lie. You're a lot more than that. Let me offer something else. What's the truth about love? That's a really, really important question. I hope you're looking for love. <laughs> this is almost a silly example. My wife and I are watching this uh, Korean drama. It's, it's something like the, my first life. It's, it's, a, it's a strange drama. And almost every other episode, I get frustrated because it's about these three women and their, their problems with their love life. And one of the women, she wants to get married to her boyfriend who she's been with for seven years. And she's been living with him for seven years. And she wants him to propose to her and get married. But this guy's scared of marriage. And then he says things like this. He says, love and marriage, I think, are two different things. And I love you so much that I can't live without you. But I don't think I'm ready to get married. And so she's been with him for seven years. And then there's a point in the drama where he asks, can we, he proposes. So he finally kind of gets a clue. And then he goes, can we wait five more years before we get married? Five more years. Does this man have any understanding of the truth of love and of marriage? He doesn't. He even goes, what is marriage? See, he doesn't even know what marriage is, which is part of his problem. And he doesn't know what love is, because love entails sacrifice and commitment. Let me give you a definition of marriage. It's when someone promises, it's a covenantal promise. It's a, in other words, it's a promise before God and all the government and all their community, so you're accountable for this promise. And then you say, you're, it's not about how you feel today, it's about what you will do tomorrow. It's a promise that I will love you tomorrow. I will love you till we're dead. <laughs> till one of us is dead. So in 10 years from now, when you get cancer, and I do not feel like waking up in the middle of the night to help you when you're puking, when you're puking from your chemotherapy, I won't feel like it. I won't be feeling it but I'll get up and help you. That's love. That's, That's the truth. That's the truth. You know where that comes from? The Bible. But apparently, this fool, so I'm watching this drama, and I want to throw things at the TV every time this guy starts to talk. <laughs> he starts talking to his girlfriend, and I'm like rooting for her to dump his idiotic rear end. And I'm like, get rid of him! <laughs> This guy's got no truth. And because he's got no truth, he's horrible. And I keep saying, so when, she's, when they have these conversations, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, addition by subtraction, girl, get rid of him. Because if this guy was dating my daughter, dude, I'd be livid. <laughs> I'd be livid. And honestly, she doesn't have enough truth either. She stayed with this guy for seven years, lived with him for seven years. So let me ask you this question. 
Do you know more about the truth of love? Do you have enough truth about love? So that you have wisdom about love and then you know how to live in, in and with and for love, real love. Not the phony thing that our society talks about. Real love, truth about love. And if you don't have that, you're in big trouble. And a lot of people today, that's the case. And where are they going to find it? Where are they going to find this kind of truth? They're going to find it from church. And if they can't find it from church, oh my gosh, they're just, they're just lost. I think more and more now, if you live in a part of the country where there is no good gospel proclaiming and Bible believing people with real conviction of what is really true and will live inside that truth and will pay the price of rejection, hatred, you name it, to live inside the real truth and to live together as God's family, his household. If you don't have that in your neighborhood, that's a really, it's a really bad neighborhood. I'd move. If I were you, I'd just move. You should move. But in Silicon Valley, we do have such a church. We're not the best church in the world, but there are churches, and we're not the only ones, thankfully. And I hope you care about our church and all the other churches that are truly offering real truth. It's desperately, desperately needed. Okay? Let's go to part two. Truth needs a household. Okay. I read in an essay this week that one of my pastor friends sent me, written by a blogger, a pretty well-respected blogger. He's Christian. His name is Rod Dreher, D-R-E-H-E-R. I think he has a regular blog for like the Dallas Morning News or something like this. But he's a Christian, but he's not what we would call an evangelical Christian. He's not a Protestant who has kind of like Bible-believing, the gospel is the center theology. He's an Orthodox Christian for the those of you who don't know, there's kind of three main branches of Christianity, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. He grew up in an evangelical setting, kind of a Baptist setting, and he rejected Christianity when he was young. And then he had this powerful, he was touring Europe when he was young, and then he walked into this unbelievable, glorious church, and he said, what kind of a God can make medieval people build a structure like this? He's like, I'm interested in this God. It turned out to be the God of his youth. But he didn't want, he found the evangelical setting that he grew up in not credible. He ended up joining the Catholic Church. And in this essay, he basically said this. In the Catholic Church, what he experienced, he and his wife experienced, was that they don't have much community. You show up at church, and you get sacrament. You go, they go through liturgy, and you get sacrament. But then afterwards... There's no meal. They don't have small group. They don't study the Bible together. They don't, you know, weep together, laugh together, pray together, and walk through life together in the truth of the gospel that, that they supposedly celebrate in the worship service. So after a number of years of this, he and his wife were just shriveling up and, and, having, and having difficulty in life. And then they were invited to an Orthodox church and the Orthodox style of worship is similar to Catholics. They have liturgy, and then they have the Lord's Supper after, every, after, every, after the sermon. And then afterwards, they had a meal. 
And when they had the meal, like, you know, they had a dinner. Or I don't know, maybe it was in the morning, maybe it was lunch. And then the people invited them, they were new, and they loved on them. And invited them into their life. And at the first day, he and his wife, they said, this is it. We're not, we're not going back. And that's it. They just dropped their Catholicism, and then they ended up joining the Orthodox Church. Why am I telling you about this? Because in this essay, he's offering something that he's very, very concerned about. Rod Dreher is saying that he's got friends who are Southern Baptists. And what he's seeing in the Southern Baptists is an evangelical-type church. In other words, they're kind of like us. I mean, Baptists are different than, you know, we're Presbyterian. And we're not exactly the same, but in this fundamental sense that what we tend to do is we put the word at the center of what we do in our worship service. That is really a big difference between Orthodox and Catholic versus Evangelical. We consider the word of God most fundamental, and then thus we put the sermon and the word in the center of the service. Whereas Orthodox folk consider that you have to join the church, and there is a word of God but at the service, you need to get the Lord's Supper. You have to do something. You have to be there. It's bodily. You must take the bread and the wine and be joined to Jesus through the church. The church is joined to Jesus. So in the Orthodox Church, apparently in the Southern Baptist Church, he's starting to find out that people are thinking that this new, this quote-unquote new way of doing church, where we do it all you know, online and through live stream, this is okay. This is really, really convenient. Let's just keep doing this even after the virus is over. And when this COVID period started and everybody started going to live stream, he talked to his uh, Southern Baptist friends and they were saying, there's no way that the Baptist church are going to stop gathering together. And he said, uh, I disagree with you. I think this is going to start happening. And you know what? He's already saying that that's what's going to start happening. It's already starting to happen. Now, I hope people just go back to doing normal church, real church, in person, bodily. We show up together. We hug each other. We cry. We have meals together. We sing together. We praise together. We repent together in person. That's real church. That's God's way. And he quotes this other author. He's a, he's a theologian named James K.A. Smith. He's a Calvin Theological Seminary. James K.A. says, too many of us Protestant evangelicals, we treat people, this is the word he uses, like brains on a stick. Like we forget that the whole human being has a body and the body and their whole presence, presence matters. Instead, we just tend to think if you just give them a word, you can download content kind of like with brains on a stick. It's like you're a computer at home. And if you can just download the right content, it's a really important content. The gospel is truly important content. But as long as you get that, then you that was good enough for church, wasn't it? No, it's not. It's not. Here's how the Bible puts it. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And listen to this next part. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, which is the habit of a lot of people today. And it's honestly us. And I'm really wrestling with this. 
but instead encouraging one or all the more as you see the day, capital D, the day when Jesus returns comes near. That's what he's talking about. Do not neglect to gather together. Why? Because the Bible says we're a household. And let me just try to give you a little bit of an easy definition of a household. A household is a family that's structured together. So you can have family. Some of you have family, but they don't live near you. They don't live in the same city. They're not part of your regular pattern of the structure of your life. You know what? They're your family, but they're not in your household. You know, you can have somebody live with you, and they're not your family. So let's say, you know, you have somebody like we, we, we've had, you know, I've known people who, uh, who have borders. You know, one of our members, her mother, when she was in high school, would take in borders from Korea so they'd go to high school and college here in America. And so then this teenager would come and live in their house for several years. They're not related to them. But you know what? Her mother treated these teenagers like family. And these teenagers are part of their household. You get what I'm saying? See the difference? A household has structure and it's together. It's family with structure together. That's a household. And the church has to have all of it. We must be family. And we have to have structure. We have to have order. We're not just some chaotic, we just gather together, we're into Jesus and flail around and then, and then we leave. That's not church, okay? That's not church. A concert of Christians gathering together, that's not church. If, if, if you and your friends get together and they're all Christians and you go bowling, that's not church. You have to have structure. You have to have purpose. You have to have worship and obedience and organization. And remember, our Father is God. And the household, it's called the household of God. It's not just because he's a member of the household. He's the leader of the household. He's the father of the household. He also lives in the household. He lives there. So let me put it a little bit, really bluntly. If you want to be near God, you've got to go to church. There's a lot of people today who think, I believe in Jesus. It's me and Jesus, and I'm a Christian, and I don't know if I really need to go to church. Do you really need to go to church? If you ever hear anybody say that, or if you've said that yourself, that person's a fool. <laughs> because if you want to be near God, you have to go where he says he is. That doesn't mean that he's not with you. He's not with you in your room, but he is present in a special way in the church. Not the building, his people, when they're being the household gathered together. So brothers and sisters, this is really a painful way to do church, this live stream thing. And I want to just let you know that if you're a member of Revived Church and you're starting thinking, maybe we just keep doing this. I want you to know, we pastors, we don't want to keep doing this. <laughs> we are not interested in doing live stream like just indefinitely. We want to do real church the household way. <laughs> and we want you to want to do real church. And this is temporary and please Absolutely, underline, emphasize, bold, 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 temporary, temporary, temporary. And hopefully very, very shortly temporary. Please come back to church. 
And when you do, go to GLF, because if you're saying, I don't, I don't got any small group, I don't need fellow, no, 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 you do. You desperately need it. You've got to sign up for GLF, and right now we've got to do it through live stream or whatever. But as soon as the weather's getting better, your GLF should say, hey, let's have a picnic. Let's go outside and gather together. <laughs> together. Because when you're just a bunch of like disembodied faces on a screen, you're not together. This a, it's like it's so... It's trying to be together, but it's actually not really together. Because presence is more than just a TV screen. It can't be that way. If God just was okay, he would have just like made us souls. And then he would just invent the TV and just like, okay, everybody just, you have a face on a TV screen and this is good enough. Heaven could be like TV screens with faces. But salvation is a resurrected body. You're present. We will hug each other in heaven. We will eat together. We will sing together. We will hug and celebrate and laugh and cry and probably not cry tears of sadness, but tears of joy. This is church. And when we do it together, the truth isn't just like some content you download like a brain on a stick. We live inside that truth. We live it together. And that's how people get it. They have to see a husband and a wife say, oh, that's what, that's what love looks like. <laughs> oh, that's what marriage looks like. Oh, they have to watch somebody else worship. That's how we do worship. They have to watch somebody weep and say, oh, that's worship. You can weep with joy. You can weep with pain. And we have faith that Jesus is there. They have to see it. They have to be there. That's how the truth has buttress, is buttressed. Now let me close our message today. I want to give you the gospel through this passage, which I think is a tremendously incredible passage, and I want to try to preach this as best as I can. Okay? And I'm closing my message by saying godliness and true humanity from the church. So here's how this passage ends. This is verse 16. Great indeed... We confess is the mystery of godliness. And then it goes on to say these interesting words. He, this is clearly Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit. So let's just break this down. Manifest in the flesh. You know what that means? He became a human being. You know, he was present. He didn't just show us a you know, send a, a TV from heaven and just go, hey, guys, you know, I'm like nicely kind of like I'm with you, which isn't really with you. He showed up in person in the flesh. He became human. And then it says he was vindicated by the spirit. You know what that means? That means the world hated him and attacked him and said he was bad and murdered him through the cross. But the Holy Spirit vindicated him through the resurrection. Now, why is this important? I want to say, close my message today by talking about what it means to be human. Now, if you've been with me, you might have heard this before, but I want to, I want to flesh this out a little bit, okay? If you did not grow up in the church, I don't know if you ever thought about this, there are not an infinite number of ways to be human. So what's the truth about being a human being? And I want to, I want to tell you right now, there are really basically only three options 
of how to be a human being. And the reason I say this to you is because I want to offer you right now a redefinition of this word godly or godliness. It says here, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And if you did not grow up in the church, you're thinking like, I'm not really interested in godliness. Can you just tell me how to live my life? This passage just did tell you how to live your life. That's what I'm trying to offer you. And if you grew up in the church, you may be thinking like, I need some truths and I need wisdom and I need to know how to do love and I need to figure out identity and what's right and wrong and morality and purpose. Yes, please give me answers for that. Well, I want to give you an even bigger, deeper truth, which is an answer for all of that, which is godliness. You're like, godliness? You mean religiousness? No. Godliness is not religiousness. Godliness is a pathway, an optional, it's a, pop, it's a potential option of how to be human. <coughs> so here we go back to it. <coughs> Three options of how to be human. One, you can be an animal. That's the atheistic evolutionary way. That's the way you were taught in school. <coughs> <clears throat> that's the way all the sociologists treat human beings. We're a cognitively designed animal. You know, you know, evolutions, you know, we have way too much brain. And then, you know, we're just an animal and we're just seeking self-interest and we just want to reproduce the species. We're basically an overly smart animal. Is that really the way you want to live your life? Because animals don't care about things like justice or love. Maybe some animals care about love, the higher animals. Which I do think there is such a thing as higher animals. Viruses don't care about love. Dogs do. But mostly animals care about food, power, survival, sex. It's mostly what they care about. Is that all your life is going to be about? Food, sex, power, comfort. You're not being very human. And we're turning the world into a zoo. These animals operate like this, and then these animals operate like this. You can go to the zoo, and it's where we're looking at the animals. Actually, the most interesting animal is the human being. So go to another country and look and see how those human beings, like, oh, these animals kind of operate like this. Is that really the way you want to be human? That's one option. The second option is you could be like the devil. I know some of you don't believe in the devil, but you know what I mean. And here's what I mean. Because here's the devil, according to the Bible, is a master of lies and deception and manipulation. So today, some people choose to be like the devil. They take a word like love and then... Instead of the truth of love, they put lies, and then they call it love. And then they spread that around and try to get everyone to operate inside of this phony love. Or they call it justice. And then they, justice, follow justice. Except it's not real justice. It's a lie, except it's got a nice name, justice. And then I can just multiply these with all kinds of other words. Oh, baby, I'll be there for you for the rest of our life. But 
where's this? Where's one of these? No, we don't really need to do that, do we? It's just one example of the lies of our society where human beings have now convinced all these other people, manipulated them with lies because we don't want to do anything like commitment, sacrifice, cost, real love. So the animal pathway, the devil pathway, here's the Bible's pathway. Genesis chapter 1, it's the very first book of the Bible, says that humans were made to be like God, to be in the image of God. And so when the church is offering truth and then a pathway to this mystery that we call godliness, you know what it's offering you? How you could be truly, fully human in the way you long to be, the way you wish you could be. Truthful, humble, serving, righteous, not self-righteous, righteous, generous, forgiving, with deep purpose and sacrifice. And people look at you and say, I want to be like that. And you know what that is? That's human, like God, that's godly. And here is how, what the church offers. So here's a, all that said, now let me give you the good news. There was one, he, his name is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He became human so that the humans would not be like animals or like devils, but like God. And then all the devil and animal ways that we choose to be, he took upon himself and he died the death that the animals and the devils, the subhumans, quite frankly, deserve. And all our wretchedness will go on him. And then he said, then the spirit conquered sin and death through him so that he could give us the real humanity. A godliness, a godlike humanity. One like him, a new humanity. A humanity which is God-like. That's the truth. This is the crazy truth of Christianity. This is the insane truth of the good, tremendous good news that we celebrate in the church and we live in it. And every day we put off the animal and the devil and we live for godliness. So some of you, you're like, I'm not very godly and I'm not very religious. Who cares about religious? Be a part of the household of God and take Christ into your life and let him give you a new humanity like God filled with truth, powerful, sustaining truth that no lie will ever overcome. And that truth will go out into the world and bless and redeem many, many people who are dying bitten by all the other animals and lied to by all the other devils. So this world could stop being a zoo, somewhere between a zoo and a hell, a zoo and a hell. Instead, we could turn it into something glorious and beautiful, something more heavenly. Because that's where God wants it to be. 
He's living there. He goes, I'm going to live with you. There's no way we're going to do zoo. We are not going to do hell. We're going to do my house. And he offered us the grace to get a new kind of humanity. So brothers and sisters, please go to church. Be with church. Live inside a church. Be of the household of God and receive the God-like humanity from Jesus. Let's pray. We stumble and we bumble and we fall down. And we're so lost in the lying-filled world. There's so much fear today. We are like animals. And if our boss is the powerful animal, we're like mice cowering before a lion. Or if the powerful people in our culture are bullying us, we are like the sheep going before wolves. But we are more than conquerors through you, Lord Jesus. We are truly human. We have courage, or we can have courage, and we can have confidence, yet with humility. And we can have forgiveness and wash away all our subhuman sins and wickedness. For sin is just trying to live life and be human with no God, built on lies, not on truth. So instead, Lord Jesus, give us all of yourself and give your church the biggest truth. And not just that we just believe it as like some idea inside of our head, it permeates our whole being. And we gather together. We do family together. We call it gospel life family. We do worship together. We cry together. We contend together. We laugh together. We rejoice together. May we, your family, your household, truly be the church. Protect Revive Church. Protect all the true churches of our city and of the Bay Area. And help us to thrive and give us courage and conviction to live for you and to bless our neighbors in this very, very trying and difficult time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.